Well, good morning. As the kids take off to children's worship, uh, I want to have you grab your Bibles and your outlines. And I know that there's a big football game tonight. I'm a big fan, but I want us to center our hearts and our minds for the next couple moments, not on what we're going to do this afternoon or who we're going to be spending time with or who we think might have a great big game tonight, but I want us to focus our minds on the Word of God this morning. I believe God's got something to share to each of us. And I want to begin by telling you a story that comes from the book Slaying the Giants in Your Life by David Jeremiah, a famous preacher from Southern California. And he starts a chapter by saying this, Four centimeters. How could four tiny make so much of a difference? How could four centimeters cause so much suffering? How could four marks on a metric tape so profoundly punish a family, strain a marriage, and call into question the very goodness of God? Your daughter has a condition called microcephaly, said the doctor. Her head should have a circumference of 35 centimeters, but it only measures out to 31. For several days, Susan sat in the hospital, pondering the ominous words. For now, nothing was sure. Mandy might lead a happy, normal life after all, but the uncertainty was cruel, almost intolerable. Her husband was out of town at the time. How could he be away at a time like this? A time when doctors were using words like retardation and severe. For weeks, the family prayed intensely, desperately, unceasingly. Countless friends and the church family joined them in prayer. The family's third child, it seemed, though, would never walk or talk, sit up or even recognize her caregivers and her parents. Her life would be defined by seizures, rounds of hospitalization, and an infinite array of medications. At the age of three months, cataracts were detected in Mandy's eyes. There was corrective surgery, but did it really matter? Susan could be certain, uh, couldn't be certain her daughter ever saw her face or even heard her voice for that matter family life was completely dominated by the care of the suffering and unresponsive child. It was an open-ended emergency, a crisis that would never be resolved. Eight hours were often required to feed Mandy. Late-night hospital trips were often routine. Meanwhile, the tensions only grew thicker between a husband and a wife. Where was God? He was more than welcome to show up. At any time now would be just fine, they would say. It was just then, in the midst of caring for Mandy, that a surprise came. Susan was pregnant again. Here, finally, was a ray of sunshine, a message that God approved of their strong faith in hard times. And the child would be their first boy. Yet in the fifth month, Susan, who went to see her doctor for an ultrasound, was given a report. The baby has a malformed heart. The aorta is attached incorrectly. There are missing portions of the cerebellum, club foot, clef, uh, lip, cleft palate, and possibly spina bifida. This is a, condi a condition that is incompatible with life. The little boy was likely to spontaneously miscarry, but in any case, he wouldn't survive outside the womb for long. The doctor suggested an abortion. But Susan, still honoring God as the giver and taker of life, carried the baby to full term. The only time she would ever have for getting to know this little boy, she reflected, might be the few short weeks that, she, that he was in her womb. The family again turned their prayers 
to survival and the healing of this child. Again, the church encircled them with intercession and support. The little boy was born. He took a big, deep breath and then turned blue. Two minutes after he entered the world, he quietly departed it again. His name would be Toby, from the biblical Tobiah, which means God is good. It wasn't how the family felt at that moment, but it is what they believed to be true. In a few months, Mandy would follow her tiny little brother into the next world, and she was buried beside her brother. Two tiny coffins, two graves, two aching losses. Susan grieved bitterly for her double loss. Her prayers were angry and accusing. If, she, if, if God couldn't take care of the children that were here on earth, how could she know for sure that they were better off now in His hands? People offered all their usual pat answers about God's allowance of suffering, but none of these lines were good enough now. Susan needed something for her soul. For nights she would lay awake pleading for a simple answer, some assurance that Mandy and Toby were safe, whole, and cared for. Just a simple answer would be enough. Just a gesture from the hand that was supposed to offer love, then perhaps she could let them go. Susan and her husband prayed, and even more, they listened. They listened through the silence. You know, you hear a story like that, a story that's filled with unanswered questions, and you say, Wow, that, that seems to hit home. I want it to hit home even more. That is the story of Marshall and Shu Susan Shelley. Marshall Shelley was here last October preaching from this very pulpit. Marshall Shelley saw the burial of two of his children, and his wife and him have been uh, instrumental in helping families deal with the grief of losing of children. What do we do with stories like that? What do we do when... When the seasons of life bring us questions that perplex our hearts and our minds, what do we do when the very fabric of our Christianity is brought low? You know, one of the most defining questions that we have as human beings is the question, why? We ask that question at beginning at a young age, why? Why, mom and dad? Why, teacher? As adults, we ask the question, why trouble? Why pain? Why frustration? Why sin? Why hardships? Why discontentment? Why the turmoil? Why the strife? Why, why, why? When times of our great struggle come, we find our hearts reeling. We begin to doubt the goodness of God. We begin to doubt the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the compassion of God. There seems to be a desire in every heart for us to understand, to secure a reason for something, the rationale that will be able to explain everything away. And to that end, humanity goes to great lengths to simply find the meaning. But many times, the meaning surrounding the circumstances of our lives remains completely elusive. More essential questions begin to haunt us in those times. What am I to do? Where am I to go? Why am I here? What is the significance of my life? What if I had only chosen another road? Maybe a different person to marry. Maybe a different career. Maybe even a different faith. When the answers to our lives elude our grasp and ignore our questions, we fall into a spiritual vertigo. And that spiritual vertigo is what I want to talk about this morning. And that is the subject of doubt. 
When doubt comes into our lives, things that once were strong and secure become a house of cards on a windy Chicago day. There's no question that doubt is an emotion that affects many of you in this place this morning. But don't feel alone. Many of the great Christians who have lived in the past have lived in seasons of doubt in their lives. Men like David, Job, Solomon, and Jeremiah were all men of doubt at one time or another. Men of the faith like reformers like Luther and Calvin struggled with doubt of their belief when they were younger and processing their faith. A great preacher from England, Charles Spurgeon, not only had seasons of doubt, but it was characterized that he had a life of doubt, and yet God used him amazing ways. David Livingston, one of the greatest known missionaries in history, struggled with doubt as well. Let's bring it to this time in our own life. I don't know about you, but there have been seasons in my own life where doubt has clouded my view of life, my view of God, my view of His goodness and His providence that He has over me. Sadly, though, our doubt as Christians doesn't fall on circumstances. It doesn't fall on the things that are surrounding um, what's going on in our life. But many times the doubt that we face is the question, is Jesus all that He says that He is? Is Jesus strong enough to come through at the end? Is He all that He advertises to be? Because when we doubt as Christians, we have the source to alleviate our doubt. But the doubt comes and says, can Jesus accomplish what he says he can? The Greek words for doubt carry a couple ideas of what this word means. The Greek tells us that doubt is an idea of uncertainty. They have the connotation of being unsettled, of lacking a firm foundation. Doubt has been called the growing pains of an eager and seeking spirit. Now don't, don't misunderstand me this morning. Doubt is not the opposite of faith, but it's an opportunity for faith. The archenemy of faith is the idea of unbelief, which is a refusal to consider something. Yet doubt, on the other hand, is a necessary leg on the journey of faith. It stands at the edge of past understandings and past circumstances, and it stretches out painfully towards new frontiers and new challenges. So today we look at a text, if you want to open your Bibles, to John chapter 4, starting in verse 43. We're going to look at a text that speaks of the subject of doubt. Here we learn of a man who, was, who had come to a place where he was full of doubts, Today we are going to see a man who seemingly had everything going for him. He was an executive. They say that he was a nobleman. He worked for Herod the Tetrarch, who was the chief dude in the area at that time. This guy you would have seen would have had his palm pilot, he would have had his trio, he would have had his PDA, whatever you want to think of, a guy that looks like he has it all put together. This is what this nobleman was. He was a man of great wealth. He was a man who was known, a man of great prestige. And yet, all of that going on, he is confronted with a situation that brings utter doubt into his mind. Nothing of earthly value that he contained would be able to alleviate his problem. And yet, when we learn that this man comes to a place of doubt, we see a pattern that we can learn in our times as Christians. Because he made a wise decision. Instead of living a life of doubt, he turned to a life of 
of faith. Not just any kind of faith, but a saving faith. If we want to look to your Bibles this morning, John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Let's look at it together. It says, After two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet had no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Once more he visited Cana and Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine, and where there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his son was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour, which is about one o'clock. Then the father realized that that was the exact time at which Jesus had said, Your son will live. So, so he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. From our text this morning, we are taught where to turn when our problems are too big for us to handle. Today we are going to be taught that Jesus is the answer in our greatest hours of doubt. I don't know what you're struggling with this morning, but I know there are questions in my mind, doubts in my mind on whether things are going to turn out the way I desire for them. Things like my children, things like my family, things like work, financial questions, things about the future. When I begin to look towards the future, I begin to have doubts in my mind. Is Jesus going to come through like he has in the past? When we have doubts like that, whatever they may be, we need to be like this nobleman. There are three things I see that this nobleman did. Because he allowed not doubt to rule in his life, but a life-changing faith to rule in his life. And we need to find the answer of how to find that life-changing faith. The answer is found, first of all, by removing, by removing the obstacles to life-changing faith. We've got to get rid of some things before we can find the answer. Now the text tells us that Jesus leaves Samaria and heads to Galilee. And while he's making the trip, he stops in Cana. Now this is where he was for that wedding, where he changed water into wine that we read about in John chapter 2. And while he's there in Cana, a man comes and he tells Jesus that his child is sick and in need of healing. Now scholars believe that this child was probably 10 years or younger. In fact, the Greek word uh, that is used for this literally means little one or small child. So many scholars believe that this was not probably um, a pre-teenager, uh, pre but probably a young child, a toddler, something like Noah, my son, four years of age probably, something like that. This man hears about Jesus, and he's 20 miles away. Capernaum to Cana is about a 17-mile trek, and he comes heading, looking for Jesus. Picture for a moment the terror it must have been in that man's life. Think about what he must have been facing. I can't imagine being told that my child is going to die. 
I can't imagine being told that by anybody or watching my son in bed losing his life. Last night we were watching on TBS the movie John Q. It's with Denzel Washington and the stories about a young boy who has a heart condition and he's created, it creates heart failure. And John, his father, goes to great lengths to get his son the healing that he needs, to get the help that he would have to have to live. This is the kind of guy that we're talking about. This nobleman has nowhere else to turn. So he hears about Jesus and he goes and he finds him. In verse 47, look at what it says. It says that he begged that Jesus would come and heal his son. When you look at what the Greek experts say about that, the word begged is the most ultimate word that could be used in this uh, time frame. What it's saying is we don't even have a word big enough for what he was truly trying to accomplish. Think about what your response would be. Your child is dying and there's no one who can help. But you hear about this man, Jesus, who's in the other town, maybe in our, in our time in St. Charles, who has been told to have miraculous power. And he runs there, and he goes, and he lays himself before Jesus and says, Come, you are my only hope in this time of great trouble. This was his last option. He begged. I will tell you, this is where our faith would be tempted to walk away from God. You don't see anywhere in this text that uh, the nobleman is getting mad at Jesus, that the nobleman is upset, that he's saying it's unfair. All he knows is he has to get the healing that his son needs. And yet within this narrative, even though the nobleman does it right, I see a compare and contrast that goes on to what you and I do. Because there are four obstacles that happen in our lives when we run into problems like this. First of all, the first obstacle to life-changing faith is a second-hand faith. A second-hand faith. Look at verse 45. It says, When Jesus arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And it says they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. In verse 47, it says, How did this man, this nobleman, know about Jesus? It says in verse 47 that the man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea. There's no question that Jesus, in his beginning of his earthly ministry was beginning to create a buzz about who he was. Now we're not sure what the nobleman knows about Jesus. All we know is that he hears that Jesus is nearby and he goes and tries to find him. He must have heard about the wedding at Cana, that Jesus had turned water into wine, that he was possibly at least a prophet, if not the Messiah. So he comes and he finds Jesus. Now this brings us to our first obstacle this morning. The man did it right. Instead of just living secondhand, with secondhand information, he goes to Jesus firsthand and finds out if Jesus can help him. But many in our world, and even some in this place, we don't do that. Think about this for a moment. They, they had heard about Jesus. They had seen what Jesus had done. But what this nobleman wanted to do was see it firsthand. He needed the experience. Because think about this for a moment. Jesus or I'm sorry, the nobleman would have never thought that Jesus, by knowing or hearing about Jesus somewhere else, would have ever helped his son. If I heard that someone was doing something, let's say in St. Charles, that's going to do nothing for my sick son. So he goes and he finds Jesus. But you know what? In lives of faith, we find ourselves many times living off of second-hand information. We find ourselves living off of second-hand experiences. 
You want to have life-changing faith like the noblemen? Then stop living lives that are on the coattails of someone else's faith. You know, we experience other people's miracles. We experience other people's times of devotion and prayer. And we put our emphasis on Jesus Christ based on someone else's experience. But you know, this wouldn't have worked. The nobleman could have gone and found everyone who experienced the new wine at the wedding at Cana, and that would have accomplished nothing for this nobleman and his family, especially his son. It was not good enough just to have heard about a miracle or to have experienced someone else to experience a miracle. This man needed a miracle in his own life. You know, that's true of us as Christians. We cannot experience faith through someone else. You cannot accept Jesus Christ through your pastor, through your elders. You can't experience him through your spouse. You must experience Jesus Christ firsthand. And there are some here today who are saying, you know what? Yeah, I think I'm going to heaven because, you know, my wife gets me to church every day or the kids force me to go to church or I'm involved in this or that or I've seen how God's moved in our life. Well, let me tell you something. It is when God, when you experience God for yourself that you're a child of God, not when you experience it through others. You cannot live on the coattails of someone else's faith. This man didn't do that. He went to Jesus so he could experience him himself. The second obstacle we see... It's a sign demanding faith. A sign demanding faith. Look at what Jesus says. This man comes and he says, Hey, I'm in trouble. My son is dying. You've got to come and help him. And Jesus says, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now I want you to know something. This is not a rebuke to the noblemen. He says, Unless you people, first of all, he's speaking to the crowd and their spiritual condition. And he's telling them that seeing is not the same as believing. Now the crowd had found someone. They had found Jesus and they liked Jesus. Why? We see all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry that they liked Jesus because he performed a lot of cool acts. If you've come just to see Jesus do some neat things, then you've come for the wrong reasons. Jesus rebukes it many times during his earthly ministry. Write this passage down, Matthew 12, 39. Jesus answers, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Even when Jesus was on the cross, hanging on the cross, the unbelieving crowd said a miracle would change their belief. In Matthew 27, 42, the crowd says he has saved others, but can he, he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we will believe him. What they were saying is, Jesus, you've done all these miracles. You've helped everybody else. Why don't you help yourself? And if you come off the cross, we will believe. And Jesus says that's not how this is done. And he separates the crowd from this man. This crowd came for a show, but this man came for a savior for him and his son. Is that what you're doing this morning? Are you a part of the crowd or are you part like this man was who's seeking for a savior is your pursuit of Christ for a show or is it for the saving of your soul you know the walk with Christ isn't about what Christ can do his supernatural glamorous things that he did here on earth but it is all about our submission to him look a couple chapters back for a moment from John chapter 4 go back to John chapter 2 this morning John chapter 2 verses 23 through 25 <clears throat> this is, of course, right after the wedding feast 
at Cana. And we start to hear something about what's going on surrounding Jesus' ministry. In verse 23 of chapter 2, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. Now if we stop there, we'll say, Wow, Jesus was doing miracles and people were becoming Christians. But that's not where it stops. Look at what John says. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. For he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. If you're pursuing Jesus for all the things that you think that he can do for you as a spiritual magician, then Jesus says, I cannot entrust myself to you. If you're pursuing Jesus for that reason, then I can assure you of something. You are not a child of God. God isn't about showmanship. He is about saving the lives of sinners. Don't put your faith in an experience, but put it in Christ. I've told you at the beginning of this section that I believe in signs and wonders. I believe they're valid, but we need to be careful that we don't demand them because when we demand signs and wonders from God, we dishonor God. What we're saying is, is Christ, I can't take you on your word, so you must prove yourself to me. That's not a life-changing faith, folks. That's skepticism. This man doesn't demand a sign, but he comes in his greatest hour of need, and he gives it to Jesus. Well, we see that that's the difference between him and the crowd, and that creates an opportunity for him to be a recipient of God's grace and mercy. The third obstacle we see to life-changing faith is a self-focused faith. I believe this man is a positive example of what we need to do when we come to Jesus in our times, times of doubt and despair. Remember, this man was about to lose his son. He was about to lose his child. I, I, again, I, I don't want us to lose sight of that. Think of your child and being told or being, uh, being able to watch that child lose his life. And this man comes with that. But there's something we can be taught from that. And that is even in our greatest times of trials, even when they are so big in our life that we should never, and hear me out, we should never, no matter how big the trial is that we face, ever make our trials bigger than God. <clears throat> Whatever you may be facing, this nobleman took his problem to God and he gave it to God. Is that what you're doing? When you have trials in your life, when you have troubles, are they becoming bigger than Jesus Christ himself? Do we run out to Jesus in our time of great need and go to him and say, Jesus, this is huge. You've got to fix it. Or do we make that problem even bigger than that God himself wouldn't be able to take care of? I spend far too much time doubting my Savior that he can help me in my times of trials. Far too many times I make the troubles of this world bigger than God Himself. I don't know about you, but that's a trial that, or that's a trouble that I have. And for me, that's a self-focused faith. Now it's understandable, it's understandable to have a heart of concern when emergencies happen. Yet no matter the circumstances we face, it's imperative that we never make them more than Jesus Christ. Far too many of us here are struggling this morning with times of trial and trouble. And the biggest reason why you have not found victory, it's not the only reason. One of the biggest reasons, though, is that you have not given it to God. 
Why? Because you've made it too big in your mind for God to handle. As I thought about that, I am reminded of a song we used to sing as a child that speaks volumes to us in our times of trial. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Listen to what it says. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have you trial and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. No, take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows your every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are you weak and heavy laden, encumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, He's still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise? Do they forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In His arms He'll take and shield thee. And there you'll find your solace there. You'll never receive the blessings from the Lord like this nobleman did until you go and you get your mind and your focus off your problem and give it to Jesus. It begins there. Oh, what hardships, what needless pains we bear because we do not carry everything to the Lord in prayer. One final thing we see is a strong-willed faith. The final obstacle, a strong-willed faith. Look at verse 49. The royal official says, Sir, come down before my child dies. The nobleman redirects Jesus from verse 48. Jesus goes to the crowd, remember, in verse 48, and he says, Man, unless I do miracles, you'll never believe. And I, I want to give you my translation. I could see the nobleman saying, uh, uh, Jesus, I'm not sure about them. I'm not sure about their need to see a sign or a miracle. But all I'm here for, all I care about is that I need help from you. I'm not sure why you're preaching a message to them, but let me tell you something for sure. My son is sick and he is dying. And if you don't help me, then nobody will be able to. This is a sign of persistence, of perseverance. This is a plea for help. And we must walk a fine line that the noblemen did. And it's this, be careful in your times of trouble. When the times are so rough and so hard that you never begin to order Jesus around. Don't we do that? Jesus, you've got to do this. Jesus, you've got to do that. You say you're a good God, you'll accomplish this. And we begin to say, if I were you, Jesus, then I would do this. I have been guilty of ordering my Savior around. I've been guilty of saying the following. Listen, Lord, your servant speaks. Instead of listen, servant, your Lord speaks. Are you ordering Jesus around in your times of trial? I'll tell you what, it will accomplish you nothing to order Jesus around. One, He's not just plain going to listen to you. Who are you, O oh man, that you can instruct Almighty God? You know, faith is not dictating to God. Faith is hearing God and obeying. So here is the nobleman with a big problem, and he doesn't fall prey to the obstacles that would have kept him from receiving a miracle. The question is, are we? Are we falling prey to the obstacles that keep us from it? Are our actions and our pursuits keeping us from a miracle? Then we must follow the lead of the nobleman. His 
pursuit finds him in the presence of Jesus. And I will tell you, when you get away from those obstacles, you'll find the presence of Jesus. Well, there's a second thing we see this morning. A second thing we see, and that is if we want a life-changing faith, then we must realize the operating procedure to that faith. We've got to understand the procedure. You see, once this guy gets beyond all the trappings that would hold him back from a miracle, he then has to go through a couple steps. This man gets to Jesus and he places his request. He says, come heal my son. Now remember, this, this nobleman, nobleman would have thought that Jesus would have had to go the 20 miles to Capernaum to physically be there to heal his son. That was his assumption. We've got to remember that. He would have thought, okay, if I heard that Jesus changed water into wine at Cana, he was at the wedding, so for Jesus' healing powers to be true, then Jesus would have to be where the healing or the miracle would need to take place. Don't forget that as we continue to move on. Because what we see is is that Jesus has other plans. There's a great application within that. Don't ever put God into a box. In your times of greatest trial and trouble, don't ever say God can only accomplish it this way. Because if the nobleman would have considered that and continued to hold to that, he would have missed out on a miracle. But we see that this miracle shows us that Jesus has the power over distance. He could heal anybody from any distance away. And we see that there is a procedure that has to take place if we want to see a miracle. First of all, it involves hearing the word. It involves hearing the word. Jesus replies to him, you may go, your son will live. Let me be blunt with you. Not that I'm ever not blunt with you. As Christians, we've got a mouth problem. We talk too much. We, we struggle with being quiet. James says, be slow to speak, quick to listen. You know, when troubles come, we want to articulate to Jesus all that's going on, and we forget that He knows all things. And so what happens is, is we go and we tell Jesus, I've got a problem, I've got a problem, I've got a problem. And we never shut our mouths to listen to what God has to say. The nobleman did. He says, come heal my son. And then we see that he shuts his mouth. And Jesus says, all right, here's my answer. Some of you are facing trials in your life today. And the reason why there, an answer hasn't come isn't that Jesus doesn't want to bring you the answer. Your mouth hasn't been closed long enough for him to get a word in edgewise. When troubles come, let's quiet down. Let's close our mouths and let's say, all right, I've given my issue to God. Now, God, what is your answer? This nobleman does does that. He allows time for Jesus to speak. I don't know how long it will be before Jesus speaks to you about your concern or your problem, but it means we must be people of patience. You know, so many times when I find troubles in my life, I go to God. I believe in prayer, so I go to my knees and I pray. But what happens? As soon as I get done praying, I start figuring out, okay, so what do I need to accomplish? What do I need to do? Where do I go for this? Where do I go for that? And I just prayed and showed my dependence on Jesus Christ, and I get up, and what do I do? I don't stay dependent. I go and I do it on my own. That's not what the nobleman did. He has time to listen and hear from Christ. But that's not good enough because we see there's some other things that need to happen. Secondly, it involves heeding the word. Heeding the word. There are two components to this heeding. 
of the word. In verse 50, Jesus replies, you may go, your son will live. And then the next words he says, look at your text in verse 50. The man took Jesus. What are the final three words there? Let's say it again. At his word. Man, it's huge. At his word. The first thing that heeding believes, write this somewhere in your outlines. Heeding, first of all, means believing. It means believing. Are you taking Jesus at his word? When Jesus says something, do you believe it? That book that is in your hands, the Bible, 66 books of inspired writings, the very breath of God, spoken, written through the hands of humans, that we might have the words of God, do you believe them to be true? 7,000 promises in the Bible, do you take them at your word? My favorite passage in all of Scripture is Romans chapter 8. And I look at the promises that are there. Do I believe that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose? Do I believe that all things we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? Do I believe that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ? Do I believe that? Part of the problem that we have as Christians in our times of doubting and our troubles is our inability to believe in the words of Christ. The essence of faith is taking God at His Word. Do you believe His Word? Second involves obeying. Not only is believing, but it's obeying. Look at the text again. The man took him at his word. What does it say? Help me out. And departed. You say, what's so big about that? Exegete that for me. He left. What does that mean? He believed and he obeyed. Again, if we forget the context of this on this Super Bowl Sunday and say, okay, it was so big, you know, this nobleman goes and asks Jesus to heal him and, and he, Jesus says, I'm going to, and he leaves. Think about this for a moment. Your son is dying and you go to someone you've never met before and your son is left, your wife, there's probably screaming and wailing going on over the grief of your son that's about to die and you go and you trek 20 miles to go find someone you've never met before but you've heard that he has some powers and you go to him and he says you may go back home your son will live and what does John say? he obeyed think about that if I came to someone in St. Charles and said my son is dying, little Noah is dying and he says, no, you can go home. He'll be okay. You've got to be kidding me. I'm not going to turn around and go home. And that's exactly what he did. Why? Because Jesus had spoken. You know, if we would gain anything out of this message, it would be that we would become a church that takes Jesus' word. It's not just enough to read His Word. It's not just enough to memorize His Word. But that we would be a church that takes Jesus in all circumstances at His Word. You know, think about that trip back home. Here He goes and He turns around and heads back home. And He goes and He's not sure what's going to happen. But I sense that since John doesn't say anything about it, that he was confident and sure, which we'll get to for uh, in a couple moments. But I want to give you a definition before I go too far. We talk about a life-changing faith, and I want to define it for you. And the best definition I have of faith is the following. Faith has been defined, write this down, as believing the Word of God, 
believing the Word of God and acting upon it. I'm not done. Believing the Word of God and acting upon it. No matter how I feel, no matter how I feel, knowing that God promises a good result. Believing the Word of God, acting upon it, no matter how I feel, knowing that God produces a good re- or promises a good result. If you need that definition later, I can get it to you. That is what this man did. This man had a saving faith. He acted on something without fully knowing all the components of it. Don't think that when Jesus answers you that he's going to explain exactly how it's all going to be done. He says this, all right, I'm aware of it, nobleman. You've come. I've heard your request. Now go back home. Your son's going to be just fine. And he doesn't say, but what about this Jesus? But what about that Jesus? Do you know what his condition is? Let me explain to you the condition. Do you know where he's at? He's in his bedroom. I want to make sure that all the gamma rays and everything get right to where they need to be and that you know exactly. No, he doesn't do any of that. He says, all right, I'm heading home. A church that believes and acts on the Word of God is a church that submits to the Word of God. What a picture for us as parents to teach our children. To teach our children that no matter the circumstances we face, that we will live lives of faith. I am a byproduct of a mother and father who live and continue to live lives of faith. No matter what has happened in their life, they've always gone back and said, I don't understand it, I don't even care how I feel about it, but I need to believe and I need to obey. Finally, it sees that he places his hope in the Word. He places his hope in the Word. In verse 50 again, he says he departed. He doesn't ask questions, he doesn't fight the answer, he doesn't try to get Jesus to come with him. Remember, he thinks Jesus has to go with him. And he doesn't even ask that. That's what faith does. Faith doesn't ask those questions. When Jesus has spoken, we don't keep going with questions. Think of that walk home. 20 miles. No car. No cell phone. No way to find out if anything has happened. Just to ponder the words, your son will live. John gives no picture of anything but a true and God-honoring obedience. What a testimony. A man places his child's well-being in the hands of Jesus, someone he had just met. And when Jesus says it's covered, it doesn't say anything about his worry or his doubt. And the question is for us today, are we willing to do that? Do we place our hope in the answer that Jesus gives? What concerns you today? Have you heard from the Lord? Are you taking Him at His word? Are you obeying His commands? Are you resting in what He says? Life-changing faith is doing what God requires of you. Resting in the confidence that He will do exactly what He said. And it is then and only then that we will experience peace. You know, my dad tells a story. And as time continues to go on, we learn more and more stories from our family in the loss of my older brother and the car crash that he experienced. And my dad told a story a couple years ago to me. And I asked him, I said, Dad, it was sometime around when Noah was being born. I was beginning to contemplate what it would be to be a father. And I said, Dad, how did you ever, how did you ever get through dealing with the loss of your firstborn child? How did you get through it? He says, Tim, he said, I remember getting the phone call from your mother saying, the police have come. They found Chris and he's dead. 
And I remember hanging up the phone and getting in the truck and heading home knowing I had five minutes to make a decision for God. And he said, I had a conversation with God. And I said, God, what do you want me to do with this? And he said, Tim, God spoke to me. He didn't open up the heavens and say, this is what you're going to do. But this is what he said. He said, I heard from God the following. Bill, don't forget that I love you. Bill, don't forget that I can use the worst things in your life to make great things come as a result. Bill, understand that I've got something great that is about to happen. And yet my dad didn't fully understand it, and I'm not sure I still fully understand what happened. But he was able to believe, he was able to obey, and he was able to rest in the goodness of God. And that's what we must do as a people. When trouble comes, we don't sit there and start yelling and pointing our finger at God. We say, all right, God, you're God, I'm not. What do you want me to do? Tell me what to do. That's a faith that experiences miracles. That's a faith that moves mountains. And you know what? As I look back now, 16, or really almost 17 years now from that time that my brother passed away, I've seen nothing but the goodness of God in my family's life. My God has been faithful to my father in that moment that he went to him. Completely trustworthy. Well, there's one final thing we see. And that is, if we want a life-changing faith, it, it involves remembering the objective to that faith. Remembering the objective. What's the application? What is the goal of this kind of faith? The goal to this faith is something of great significance, and it's not even in your outline. Write this down. God uses your greatest struggles to draw you to Himself. Your biggest pains and sufferings in the life of a Christian is God drawing you to Himself. For some of you here today, the problems you're facing with your children and your marriages, with your work, with finances, with the loss of a loved one, is God's way of bringing you closer to Himself. I told you a time some years ago, right after I accepted the position of being the uh, preacher here at the church, that I experienced a, a, a nearly a life-ending depression. I was so depressed. I mean, fits of crying. I couldn't get out of bed. And I said, you know what? Why are you doing this to me, God? And I look back and through that terrible time of struggle, I've seen that God said, you know what, Tim? You weren't close enough to me. I just wanted to pull you a little closer. And the only way I could do that is to start breaking down issues of pride and self-confidence and bring you closer to myself. You know, this nobleman would have never met Jesus had his son not been sick. His greatest trial brought him to the feet of Jesus. You know, I want to say something that you may be offended with, but I want you to wrestle with it. I pray that God will give me trials. Think about that for a moment. I pray that God will give me trials. Why? Is it because I want to take a beating in life? No. But God says, and if I'm going to take Him at His word, that I should consider trials great joy. Why? Because when trials come, something is produced in Timbidal that is different than when the good times happen. Are you praying that God would use trials in your life to strengthen you, to bring you character, to give you hope? I pray that we as a church experience trials. Not trials that destroy us, but trials that grow us. 
And if we believe in a sovereign God, then we know that any trial that He gives us as a church or as individuals are going to be approved by Him. And that He'll give us everything we need to fix it. So why does God want us to have a life-changing faith? I know I'm running out of time, so let's go down these quickly. First of all, a life-changing faith does some things. It accomplishes some things. First of all, it meets you in times of crisis. It will meet you in times of crisis. Remember, this man had all the things that money could buy. He had prestige. He was well-known. But none of that would accomplish the crisis that he was facing. None of his MasterCard, Visa, or an American Express would heal his son. But a life-changing faith would. As he encounters Jesus, he learns that Jesus is the only answer to his crisis. And you know, the world is hungry for this. I'm blown away that the world wants nothing to do with us as Christians. The world says, get your Bible out of here. Until some tsunami happens or some hurricane happens, our schools say, no, we don't want the Bible in here. And then they call me on some random Tuesday and they say, Tim, come and don't forget your Bible because some teenager lost his life and we don't have the answers to those things. And that's what happens. Our faith is what gets us through times of crisis. And the world sits there and says, I don't understand that, but I know I need it. So don't be offended when your friends and your family say, I don't want anything to do with the Bible. Pray that God will bring trials into their lives to allow your faith to be a witness in their times when their answers are not adding up to the problems that they have. It will meet you in times of crisis. Next, it will allow you to be confident. We see a confidence throughout the last part of this scriptures. In verse 51, it says that he's on his way. Again, there's no picture of him doubting. There's no picture of him being at, uh, at anything but peace in going home. He's confident. You want to get through times of trials, times of doubt in your life? When questions come up, you want to be confident? Then follow the words of Christ. A life-changing faith is one that remembers that Jesus is for us. You know, Philippians chapter 4, we know the passage about being anxious for, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, prayer and petition. But you know that the more important part of that, uh, that passage comes four words before verse 6. It says in verse 5 of G uh, Philippians 4, the Lord is near. Then it says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. This man experienced the peace of Almighty God. He didn't have the answer. He didn't understand all the components. But what does he say? He says, I am at peace. I'm heading home to go see my son who is alive. Are you experiencing the time or the peace of God in your times of trouble? This man did, and he gave his problems to God, and he was no longer anxious. Finally, we, or thirdly, we see a confirmation. Our faith gives us a confirmation. Verse 51, while he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that was the exact time at which Jesus said to him, your son will live. Underline that word inquired. That word inquired doesn't mean that he was wondering if Jesus was actually true about it, but he was wanting, excuse me, to understand the components of it. He was wanting to see how it got done. It is the same, in fact, Greek word that gives the significance when uh, Mary is talking to Gabriel about the virgin birth. 
Remember when Mary says, how will this come to pass? She's inquiring. She's not saying, I don't believe you, Gabriel, that God can accomplish this. She just has an inquisitive mind. How is this going to happen? I believe it's going to happen, but how is it? That's what this guy's doing. What he's saying is, is tell me how it happened. I knew it happened, but tell me how it happened. There was a confirmation. I will tell you something. When you take God in His Word, He will always confirm it. It's not going to be uh, as a result of circumstance or as coincidence or luck. You are going to see the hand of Almighty God in that way. He doesn't want us to doubt or to live in fear, but He wants us to be confirmed that He is at work no matter the circumstances. Finally, we see one final thing, and that is that we need to be contagious about our faith. It involves being contagious. Look at verse 53. It says that his, he and his entire household believed. How did they believe? Remember, a couple days beforehand, the child is sick. And they, he, they, he goes, he says, I'm going to go find this Jesus. And I'll bring him back. Remember, they would have thought that they would have had to have been in Capernaum for this healing to take place. And the guy hasn't even gotten back yet. And the son is healed. What transpired in the family's life that would change that? I believe it's what the man did, and we don't see it in the Scripture. But it's the only way that it could have come. And what would have happened was is the servants see him on the road, and they say, hey, he's healed. And, and the man says, you know what? I was talking to Jesus at just that time, and Jesus told me, our son will live. Let me tell you about this Jesus. I want you to look up here for a moment. One of the greatest tools of evangelism is how we respond in our times of trial. You know, the world's got a magnifying glass on us as a Christian a family and flock and a faith, but it's when we experience trials that they're really looking at us. And the question is, who are we attributing the goodness from in our times of trials? What that nobleman did is he went to his home and he said, let me tell you about this Jesus. This Jesus gave me the answer to my doubt. When you are suffering through trials, and maybe even right now, what are your people at your work saying about you suffering in those trials? Are they seeing you point your finger at God? Or are they seeing you articulate to Jesus that He is my only answer? Give your doubts, give your trials to Christ. Hear His Word. Heed His Word. Place your hope in that Word. And when you do, you will experience life-changing faith. Let me close our service with prayer. Father God, we've gone a little long today, but Lord, I pray that our hearts were centered on your word this morning. Father, I know there's hurts. I know there's pains. I know I have even my own struggles, my own doubts, things that have happened uh, even this last year that have brought into question of where you're at at times in my own heart and mind. But Father, I pray just as this nobleman did that when our times of trial and trouble come, that we would go and find you. Father, that we would open our ears to hear from you. Father, if it means we have to stay at your feet for a long period of time, I pray that we would be a people of patience and wait. And Father, when you speak, Father, I pray that we would say, your servant listens. Lord, let us be a church that does not push away trials. But Lord, prays that the trials that come into our life would be used in great ways. Lord, we've got many issues and many struggles in this place. And Father, I pray that they would be used to bring in a harvest of righteousness. That Lord, that people would see our character and our perseverance and our hope and the maturity of our life in Jesus Christ. Because Lord, you are the answer to our doubt. You are the only hope that we have when trouble comes. 
So, Lord, I pray that we would follow these steps that you have prescribed in your word. Faith is believing and acting on your word, Father, no matter how we feel, knowing that you promise a good result. Let us be people of faith this morning, Father. Only through your Holy Spirit can we accomplish it. So we petition that this morning, to be people of faith. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may go and fellowship with one another.